Good morning and welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm very happy to have you here. We have a really wonderful panel, uh, which I'm just going to introduce very briefly. And uh, then, without, uh, without much delay, we're going to proceed. We're going to have some introductory remarks from the four panelists. Um, and then we're going to have a conversation about some of the, uh, about the panel, about the most re recent Turkish elections, the, uh, the increasing, apparent increasing power of the Kurdish population, uh, and how that will affect the regional, the regional reality, and also how it will affect U.S.-Turkish relations and U.S. policy generally in the region. So allow me to begin. Um, all the way to the <coughs> left is Ambassador James Jeffrey, now at the Washington Institute, who, uh, was, who was at one time the ambassador, United States ambassador to Turkey. Um, to his right is my Hudson Institute colleague, uh, Eric Brown. To his right is Tolga Tanis, who's the Washington correspondent for Horayet. And to his right and to my immediate left is Gunal Tol, who is the uh, founder and director of the Turkish Studies Institute at the Middle East Institute. Um, so uh, Tolga, will, uh, Tolga will begin, and, um, and then we'll move to Ambassador Jeffrey after that. Okay. Thank, thank you, Tolga. No, thank you, Lee, for having me. Um, I'm going to make a brief comment regarding the elections and some striking points which can be interpreted like uh, the major uh, results of these elections, what happened in Turkey, what happened in the June 7th elections, and what are, what are the major results of this election. Um, this election came after 12 years of AKP the, the AKP governance in Turkey, they came, power, they came to power in 2002 when after a coalition government uh, the, in Turkey bef before that there was a, a long time uh, the economic crisis, mm -hmm. some stability pro problems within, within, within the country, etc. In 2002 AKP came to power and they won three consecutive elections after 2002 and 2000. Uh, 15 this this year's election was the major uh, major change in Turkish politics, especially over the last uh, the, the last 15 years of the AKP governance in Turkey. This elections also was the first time that uh, right now who is the guy who is the president uh, Mr. Erdogan didn't run in an election over the last 12 years again, and this. Uh, election also is the first election that as a result there is no any single party government anymore in Turkey after 12 years as I said after AKP, AKP's uh, governance in Turkey. Uh, the leadership has changed uh, so we will see uh, what the coalition government negotiations how the, the this negotiations will be unfolding but it's obviously we have a new prime minister now we have we will have a new government not a single party government, but probably a coalition government. And, and also, uh, the, for the first time, civil society played a major role in these elections. Because especially in 2013, after the uh, Graf Probe and Gezi protests in, in, in Turkey, uh, the people started to question the results of the elections <coughs> in, in terms of the fraud allegations, in terms of the being fair and uh, free to conduct a free and fair elections, etc. And for the first time, given these allegations over the last two years, uh, especially in the, elect, uh, the municipality elections in 2014, uh, the civil society played a major 
role to monitor the, the elections and to, to monitor the, 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 the elections to being in terms of being fair and free elections because for example they they started to form some NGOs who are especially working specifically on this issue uh, one of them was uh, water and beyond in, in, in English and they the 50,000 people joined to this movement all around the world not only in, in, in Turkey but all around the world to contribute to monitor these this elections to, 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 to in terms of being fair and uh, free so civil society for the first time played a major role uh, also in, in these elections that's the, one of the major striking points as well and also uh, this election was the first election after the Gezi protest. In 2013, it was a milestone for Turkey. Uh, when the people uh, demonstrated against the government, uh, suggesting that the, the government, and especially at that time, uh, the, form, the then uh, Prime Minister Erdogan, is becoming more authoritarian day by day, uh, one million people uh, gathered in Taksim Square in Istanbul and millions of people uh, protested against the government all around the country. This parliamentary election was the first parliamentary election. I'm not counting the municipal elections in 2014, but this parliamentary election was the first one after the Gezi protest. And I think the, the, the results is also reflecting the people's uh, deep, deep people's think, thoughts on, 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 on this trend in the Turkish government and especially the Erdogan's governance in, in Turkey. So uh, also we, we, we should uh, take attention to the, the Gezi protest, how, what would the, the role of the Gezi idea in, in these elections as well. So this, this also is a striking point. And also the, the corruption allegations arise in Turkey after the graft probe started at the end of 2013, just after six months of the Gezi protest, um, was the, one of the major uh, the, the factors played a role in these elections because municipal elections came just after three months of this graph probe started in December 2013. So it's a little bit controversial how this, these allegations played a role in municipal elections in 2014, but definitely uh, this, uh, this elections also is reflecting the, uh, the, the, the question marks of the Turkish people on, on, on the corruption issues in Turkey in Turkish government as well. And uh, democracy, this is uh, another controversial issue because uh, we have some press freedom issues, problems in Turkey. And the, the, I, I'm suggesting that especially uh, President Erdogan doesn't believe the universal definition <laughs> of the press freedom or human rights, etc. But the thing is, when you are conducting, for example, polls in, 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 in Turkey, the people, uh, the Turkish people uh, do not care about this kind of things. So we, the journalists, the intellectuals, or the, the, the majority of uh, the publishing world, let's say, in, in, in Turkey, are uh, complaining about the approach of the Turkish government to, to this issue, to press freedom or human rights problems in Turkey as well, etc. But the thing is, when uh, you are trying to get the, the opinion of the Turkish people. For example, 60% of the Turkish people do not believe that press freedom is a major problem in Turkey. But even though, uh, given the fact that over the last years uh, the journalists have been jailed because of the accusations coming directly from the President Erdogan or the Turkish government, 
or the, the rule of law pro problem arised, especially after the corruption allegations and graft probes started in, at the end of 2013, uh, or other freedom of speech problems or other basic fundamental human rights uh, problems in Turkey, uh, I think the democracy also was one of the factors, the, the, this, this lack of uh, rule of law or lack of uh, freedom of press or lack of freedom of speech uh, played a role in, in these elections, I think. And um, as a result, for the first time, Turkey or, uh, remembered the coalition tradition in Turkey. So we're going to experience again a coalition government after uh, 13 years, as I said. Uh, and when you look at the leadership of the current parties in the parliament right now, there are four uh, leaders of HDP, MHP, CHP, and AKP, and only one of them has experienced the coalition government in Turkey. Three of them has no idea about how to form a coalition government. They didn't mm -hmm. experience it before. So it will be a, a major uh, experience for Turkish uh, people and the mm -hmm. Turkish press also. <laughs> and the last point, uh, only two points, two uh, things have uh, changed dramatically after the results. The drop of the AKP, uh, the, the vote of the AKP dropped at, at least 9% comparing uh, to 2011 parliamentary elections. And the vote of the Kurdish uh, party, HDP, increased dramatically. I mean, they got 6% in the last parliamentary elections. I mean, I'm talking about, the, for example, but assuming that they run as a, as a party, but they were independent in 2011 because of this threshold problem, threshold regulation in Turkey. Because if you don't exceed, uh, if you don't exceed 10% as a party in Turkey, you cannot uh, be represented in, in Turkish parliament. That's the rule of, uh, the, of Turkish constitution. That's why they run as a, uh, independent uh, candidates in 2011. But as a party, they got approximately 6%, and not right now they got 13%. So AKP's vote dropped, Kurdish votes has doubled as a result, and CHP and MHP's vote didn't change at all. Uh, a little bit, a slight increase in MHP and slight decrease in CHP, but it's not, a, I mean, it's not an important change. And this was a major point, actually, this, in this election. Yeah, that's something I'm going to want to come back and ask you to fill out a little more. I mean, not not right now, but later when we're yeah, speaking. Yeah, brief the, in general. You know, what, what are the different reasons why there, we see the fall and also the the rise with the with the Kurdish party? Uh, thank you very much, Tolga. Ambassador. Okay. Uh, fortunately, someone who knows more about internal politics than I has sketched out uh, what has happened in these elections. So I'll focus more on foreign policy and uh, the specific issue uh, that was raised in in the. Uh, uh, <clears throat> setting for this, which is uh, the question of the Kurds in this foreign policy and in the domestic situation. But I can't resist a couple of uh, brief words on uh, the political situation. Uh, since um, the end of the uh, Ataturk era, the basic question in Turkish politics has been uh, how can this relatively modern, modernizing state be governed effectively? Uh, with the limited exception of Turgut Özal for a period in the late uh, in the 80s and been in the 1990s, uh, we really haven't had an answer to that until uh, the AKP and uh, Prime Minister slash President Erdogan. Uh, like him and his policies or not, uh, he answered that question of can Turkey be governed effectively with a resounding yes for almost all of the last 
13 years. But almost all is important because things, the wheels started coming off uh, around the time of Gezi Park, perhaps a bit earlier. And the result is, uh, from the standpoint of the longer-term historical perspective, what this election showed is 60% of the Turkish people said, we don't like how you are running the country under this present regime, and particularly the direction you want to take the country. That's pretty potent. And uh, so the question now is, how alternatively can the country be run? There are various uh, options and uh, scenarios that we'll be able to get into uh, involving uh, some kind of coalition, which you just heard the pluses and minuses of a bit, uh, new elections, which has some downsides, but probably would result in a stronger position by the AKP, uh, or some kind of chaotic situation. Don't underestimate Erdogan's ability to do that. Don't underestimate the Kurds' ability if new elections led to them uh, by means fair or foul falling under the 10% barrier of also doing that. So there's a little bit of a uh, red line in this thing in the future. <clears throat> uh, and we don't know yet. And that's important because you can't really talk all that much about foreign policy until you know how the country is going to be uh, governed. Nonetheless, a few preliminary comments regardless of what happens within the most likely scenarios. First of all, uh, foreign policy and security policy has largely been the purview of the Turkish president uh, uh, beyond what the Constitution says. Ask uh, the uh, chief of the general staff, General Turumtai, about that in 1991 uh, when he was fired by President Azal because he wouldn't support uh, uh, fighting or uh, supporting the U.S. Uh, in the first Gulf War. It is uh, up to Erdogan to sketch out the major elements of foreign policy. From my experience with the guy, it's hard for me to see that he will deviate too much from where he is now. Nonetheless, with different parties vying for power, pulling him in different directions, perhaps being in a coalition with him, there can be changes. Uh, Marat Yetkin, a well-respected journalist also from Hurriyet, uh, has a piece in today's uh, Hurriyet Daily News on uh, how foreign policy would change. Basically, it would shift a bit more towards the more traditional Turkish policy. We already see this with uh, talks between uh, uh, the foreign ministry's number two, Sinirliolu, uh, and Dori Gold uh, from Israel on possibly opening that relationship. Uh, this uh, almost frenetic embrace of the Muslim brothers around the region uh, be it Syria, be it Egypt, uh, is likely to uh, be toned down somewhat. And this could result in a foreign policy, if it's coherent, and I have to underline if it's coherent, that would be a bit more to the liking of this administration and probably any succeeding U.S. administration. Uh, nonetheless, a few cautions. First of all, Erdogan is going to stay as president. The AKP uh, will almost certainly be the uh, party that provides most of the uh, government uh, ministries, uh, so there won't be that much of a change. Secondly, as someone who spent three of my four tours in Turkey before the Erdogan era, I can say that even then, uh, conducting foreign policy with Turkey is no bed of roses. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful or condescending way. Turkey is a very serious country. Uh, it has natural and important national interests that to some degree deviate from ours, just like France, just like Japan, just like South Korea. Uh, and there was a clash of interests repeatedly over the years. It's an urban legend that they were our most loyal and best ally. Other than Tony Blair personally, I don't know anybody who's fit that description <laughs> in the last 50 years. Yeah. But uh, 
anyway, uh, there are going to be issues with energy, particularly with Russia. Uh, Turkey is dependent upon 60% of its uh, uh, gas uh, from Russian deliveries, and it is very interested in a gas and, for that matter, petroleum hub concept. Erdogan has pushed that. It's popular throughout the country, popular in the foreign ministry, and Putin is very is all over that, as they say. Uh, there's that issue. And finally, there's the issue of the Kurds. Uh, and when we talk about the Kurds, we're talking about now three separate groups. We're talking about what up until very recently was uh, Erdogan's allies in a historic and highly successful uh, reintegration of the Kurdish population into Turkey. That is one result of this election. It is fragile, particularly if the Kurds were tossed out again, but it is a very, very important development. I don't think anybody but Erdogan could have delivered on that. Uh, but what's going to happen now when the Kurds could be in opposition to him and if he forms a coalition with the MHP, that's the one party that has been in a coalition before I was in uh, Turkey uh, and watched them uh, conducting themselves as a coalition party, and I'm not very uh, confident in their uh, experience and skills either. So uh, the MHP will be a real problem for the Kurds and for Erdogan if he wants to continue. The other two Kurdish groups are, and they're all different in some respects, um, the Kurdistan Regional Government of Northern Iraq, they're a huge energy, economic, security, and other uh, relationships between Ankara, particularly but not exclusively Erdogan and his uh, close allies, and Masoud Bazani. Uh, and thirdly, uh, the PYD and the essentially offshoots of the PKK in northern uh, Syria, who are militarily very successful uh, against ISIS, yet uh, pose problems for Turkey. And there's a certain... Don't, I wouldn't overemphasize it, but there's a certain uh, sense of unity among the three Kurdish groups that was manifested in the uh, 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 hut phase of the battle for Kobani and the reaction of uh, Kurds in Turkey. So uh, a lot out there to discuss. Thank you. Ambassador, thanks for that terrific uh, introduction, especially um, being able to uh, put a face on the different Kurdish groups, because I think a lot of the times, as we were discussing before, some of the times people, when we refer to the Kurds, there's this idea of a large unified group instead of understanding it um, as with many things in the Middle East, that it is not a unitary thing. There are a number of competing, uh, competing ideas and interests. So thank you very kindly, and I look forward to coming back to that more later. Donald, if you would. Um... Sure, and that was a very nice introduction to what I want to yeah. cover today. So I would like to talk about uh, the Kurdish issue from the domestic perspective. So now we have, I think, the pro-Kurdish HDP uh, success was historic. It captured 13% of the votes, and that's a first in, in Turkish history. Before, the Kurdish parties uh, wanted to run as independents to circumvent the, the notoriously high 10% electoral threshold. Um, and, but this year, they decided to run as a party. And, and some people thought that that was a very risky decision, considering there is an ongoing peace process with the government. There is uh, peace negotiations with the PKK and the state. And if the Kurds cannot, make, uh, cannot cross the, the, clear the threshold, then we would not have Kurdish representation in the parliament. And some thought that that would be very risky, because who is, who is going to represent the Kurdish vo uh, voice? Uh, and some others uh, thought that, that was the, the stakes were not high because 
the, the Kurdish peace process would be at risk, but also Turkish democracy would be at risk. People thought that if the HDP failed to clear the 10% threshold, that would give the AKP even more, more power and seats in the parliament. Because according to Turkish electoral law, if you nationally, if you do not uh, clear the threshold, then uh, your seats go to the first runner in that constituency. So in the Kurdish reg region, that is the AKP. So historically, the Turkish votes have been divided between the AKP, 50% voted for conservative center-right parties, and the other 50% voted for pro-Kurdish nationalist parties. So the AKP uh, was as Kurdish as the pro-Kurdish HDP before. So that's why it was many people criticized the HDP leader Selatin Demirtas's decision. But they uh, got 13%, and, that, and, and that's very important. And he, I think, the leader, Selatin Demirtas, could be able to capitalize on the anti-AKP sentiment in the country. So he could be able to uh, appeal to the voters in the West. So he appealed to uh, the constituencies that he has not appealed to, or the, the pro-Kurdish parties have not appealed to before. So he got votes from the main opposition, CHP, got votes from the Western voters, and he also appealed to the conservative Kurds who have traditionally voted for the HDP. So the first segment, um, the votes that he got from, from the western part of the country was mostly due to that anti-AKP sentiment. The liberals, the people in the west, thought that the AKP, uh, they were very concerned about the country's authoritarian turn. So they thought, and the HDP ran a very liberal campaign. They had... Uh, openly gay and lesbian candidates, they had Armenians, they had Christians, they had conservative Kurds, and he really framed, Selatin Demirtas really framed the party as the liberal alternative. He framed the party as the party that could fill the liberal void that was left by the AKP, because remember, the AKP came to power in 2002 and it ran on a very EU, very democratic platform, and it carried out many reforms. Uh, but, but it lost that momentum. So there was a void uh, in Turkey, a liberal void. So the HDP said that we are not just a pro-Kurdish party that exclusively focuses on the Kurdish coast. We could offer the democratic alternative. So he could be able to appeal to those voters. And on the other hand, he could be appealed to the conservative Kurds because of what happened in Kobani. The government... Uh, you know, Kobani is the northern Syrian town, and there was, uh, there was a clash between the Islamic State and uh, the PYD forces, which is the, the PKK Syrian offshoot. And Erdogan, he just stood by, and he, uh, he did not open the border, thinking that the ISIS would capture the town and, and, and defeat the Kurds. Uh, so that's how he alienated his conservative Kurdish base. So after Kobani... Uh, the conservative Kurds switched sides. Uh, and that's how the HDP could be able to capture 13%. So again, I think this is, for the first time, a pro-Kurdish party formed a big coalition. There are marginal groups supporting the HDP, environmentalists, women's organizations. Um, but I think, on the other hand, <coughs> the HDP still faces 
many challenges. And the first challenge is, how is Selahattin Demirtas going to balance uh, two different constituencies with conflicting demands? So on the one hand, you have the Western voters who um, voted for the party thinking that this is not an exclusively Kurdish party. And this, could, this party could, do, uh, could contribute to Turkish democratization and, and could unite the country because there's so much polarization in the country. So we could, all, uh, we could all get together under one umbrella. So that is how the Western voters, voters have seen the HDP. But on the other hand, you have the, the Kurdish votes, Kurdish voters. And the Kurds, uh, considering what's happening in the region, uh, the PYD uh, has been fighting a very effective war against the Islamic State. The Kurdish Peshmerga are, are doing a better job in the anti-ISIS coalition. So all of a sudden, the international mood vis-a-vis -vis the PKK and the Kurds has changed. Uh, so they think that this is their moment. They think that um, the, Western the West is supporting their cause. They think that they... They receive this military, political, and diplomatic boost. So they have high expectations. And I was recently uh, in Turkey traveling the, the Kurdish towns on the border. And I realized that, that overconfidence. The Kurds really think that we have, to, we have to seize the moment. This is our moment. And we are very strong. And they were quite confident. And, and I think they were overconfident. I've seen, I've talked to many people in the Arbaker, there are, you see all these uh, civil society organizations that are associated with the PKK. They are running schools that are providing Kurdish education to, to, to kids. Uh, and I asked one of them, so aren't you scared of the government reaction? Do they know that they're running these schools? And he said, well, we don't care. It's not the 1990s anymore. So this is a different era. And, uh, and, and the, the government and the larger Turkish society has to accept that. So you have a, an overconfident Kurdish population and, a, and a, a very excited young Kurdish generation that is not going to settle for cosmetic changes. So that's why you have high expectations, Kurdish expectations on the one hand, and you have another constituency that wants to tame those expectations on the other. So how are you going to balance those? And... And the second is, um, despite all the setbacks, I think the AKP and Erdogan have been the Kurds' best bet. Erdogan has been one of the boldest Turkish leaders. Uh, he, when he launched the Kurdish opening in 2009, and then he relaunched it in 2012, he really he, he wanted to solve the Kurdish problem for his own reasons, very pragmatic reasons, but it doesn't matter. So he did... He has taken bold steps. And one of the reasons why he could be able to do that was because he did not, he, ha, he could be able to form a, a majority government. So there was no coalition partner that he was, uh, that he had to explain himself to. So he was strong enough, electorally and institutionally strong enough to carry out those, to, to launch uh, the Kurdish initiative. So, but now the HDP could, weakened the AKP in a way because the, H the HDP success came at the expense of the AKP. Uh, so now we have a weaker, H uh, weaker AKP, uh, 
But then who is going to solve the Kurdish problem? What will happen to the, the Kurdish peace process? Now HDP is facing several actors, and none of them are willing to, to take those bold steps. They have the CHP, uh, the secular party, which has a very strong nationalist base. And it already lost 1% of its votes compared to 2011 general elections. So the CHP leader might not be as willing to, uh, to deliver on the Kurdish peace process, uh, not to alienate his base even further. And you have the ultra-nationalist MHP that's been basically saying that if you want to form a coalition government with me, you have to end the peace, Kurdish peace process. So I think that's why uh, it's not going to be easy for the HDP. Uh, Selahattin Demirtas has to deliver on the Kurdish peace process. If he doesn't, he's going to lose that, uh, that conservative Kurdish votes. And, and I think, it, 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 interestingly, he has made the HDP a non-ethnic party. But on the other hand, the HDP has become more ethnicized. Because he could be appealed to the Western vote voters, but on the other hand, now 65% of the Kurds are voting for the HDP. So that's why it's going to, he, he will need to walk a very fine line at a time when um, the Kurds are, are, they have high demands and high expectations. And I'll stop there. Thank you. That's fascinating. And it's very interesting what you point out, that the peace process is endangered if the AKP gets or maybe not endangered, but it's less fragile mm -hmm. um, if the AKP is weakened. And also the other thing I want to come back to is the idea of uh, overconfidence and to have you talk about that a bit more. Right now, um, Eric, if you, could, uh, yeah. if you could go ahead. Thanks. Uh, I have the unenviable task of batting cleanup. Um, uh, and so what I'll rely upon is a quote from the recently departed former uh, president of Turkey, uh, Demirtas. Uh, as many of you will remember, he was a very wise and witty and funny man. And one of my favorite Demiralisms was, if I were to sum up the situation in Turkey in one word, it would be good. If I were to sum it up in two words, it would be not good. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that fits the situation very well. Um, these were indeed, as all of my colleagues here said, uh, historic elections. Uh, HTP broke the threshold. And I don't think that, if you will, the power of the Kurds is going to change anytime soon. My reason for saying that is uh, based upon what we've been able to assemble over time about what we understand to be the long-term demographic trends in Southwest Asia. Uh, there was um, a very interesting article published in 2008 by some Turkish uh, uh, demographers, which found that uh, people in Kurdish-speaking households in Turkey and people in Turkish-speaking households effectively lived under different demographic regimes. The fertility rate amongst uh, Turkish-speaking households resembled that of Western Europe. It had actually reduced to about 1.88 children per mother. In Kurdish-speaking households, the fertility rate was about 4.08. When you look at these long-term trends over time, uh, Turkey's political future, its ethnic future, looks decisively post-Turkish. Uh, or at bare minimum, in the next 20 years, uh, the Kurds are going to play, are going to be a much, much more substantial minority in Turkish politics. And uh, Turkish politics is going to need to respond to that reality by, among other things, uh, providing them with uh, institutions, uh, capability to express their aspirations and their frustrations with the situation in Turkey. 
Across the region, we see in all of the different Kurdish factions, the total population is about 30 million people. That's in Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and in Iran. Over the next 20 years, uh, the overall Kurdish population, that is people born in ethnic Kurdish-speaking households, could reach upwards of 50 million. And I offer those numbers with all the usual caveats that demographers need to offer their numbers with. But what we're talking about here is um, a, a demographic phenomenon that is changing the deep structure of power across Southwest Asia. And it's already forcing the controlling regimes in the region and the regimes that structure everybody's lives to respond to this reality. And that's partly what we've seen in the recent elections in Turkey. Over time, um, the interesting question is, what does this mean for Turkey? Um, uh, because um, within the various Kurdish populations, we're seeing two other very interesting trends. One, the Kurds, as we know, are, are, are uh, effectively exercising much greater sovereignty over their own affairs today than ever in modern history. We see that in the self-governing region in, in northeastern Iraq and KRG. We see that in the three autonomous cantons now in Syria as a consequence of the wars and the state collapse there. And we see that in the party building that we've seen in HDP, which expressed itself in the recent elections. The interesting question, I think, for the future is to what degree will the Kurds be able to maintain that sovereignty in their respective different polities? And what conditions will allow them to consolidate that and exercise greater control over their own affairs? And what kind of political arrangement, if you will, in the region is best to absorb this growing population? Um, these are key questions for the future. The other thing that we've seen is, despite the deep factionalization across what, if you will, describe greater Kurdistan, despite the factionalization, there is growing ethnic solidarity. Um, there is an acknowledgment that in the past, the better organized powers which had surrounded the various Kurdish communities um, could aggrandize themselves and keep the Kurds down and subordinated um, insofar as they were able to play one Kurdish faction against another. There are enlightened leaders in all of the different Kurdish communities around the greater Middle East that have said that even though we have irreconcilable differences amongst ourselves, we're no longer going to allow outside powers to manipulate us. Um, and insofar as the Kurds can maintain, maintain that kind of ethnic solidarity, their ability to actually influence the politics of the region is going to grow. And this is, I think, a formidable reality that people are just beginning to grapple with. Now, of all the presently existing regimes in the region, the one that's best suited to deal with this is, of course, the Turkish one. As a constitutional democracy, Turkey can deal with what is a very enormous problem. Analysts just 20, 10, 15 years ago used to speak uh, about the so-called Kurdish question in Turkey, but that seems already a very quaint and oversimplistic way of talking about it. The Turkish Republic now looks at greater Kurdistan on at least three different fronts. There's the front in West Kurdistan, there's the KRG in Northeastern Iraq, and then there's the internal border with Kurdistan. Um, and peace on all of those fronts is, I think, absolutely important for Turkish national security going forward. If Turkey can figure out a way to cope on all three of those fronts, that is, sue for peace, find a condominium, find a political settlement, find a peaceful settlement, then the Turkish Republic in the future will enjoy greater security than it has ever enjoyed in the, since its founding in 1923. If it fails on those fronts, if it chooses policies that, put, that weaken its position on these fronts, 
then Turkey's internal stability and its external stability in the region is going to suffer as a consequence of that, particularly because there are powers in the region that mean to do Turkey harm or could mean to do Turkey harm in the future, and they will play upon grievances uh, against the Turkish Republic as a consequence of this. Now, I have to give credit to AKP, um, uh, not to Erdogan, but to AKP in particular for picking up where Kemalism had left off. Kemalism had struggled to make Turks out of Kurds uh, for many years. It was, in a way, a culminated force. It was the greatest sort of project of nation building in the modern Middle East that we've seen. But it was effectively a culminated force in the, come the 1960s and the 1970s. And it was only until the 2000s when we, the world began to take notice of this fact. But it failed to turn Kurdistan into part of Turkey because it insisted upon the fact that Kurds needed to become Turks and to jettison their own sense of, of, of who they were as people. Uh, the AKP came along, I think, with a very pragmatic policy to begin with of, of trying to create a, a more peaceful uh, situation in Kurdistan. Uh, uh, Erdogan effectively offered greater cultural autonomy to the Kurds in exchange for votes. This obviously was an effort to aggrandize Erdogan's own party, um, but you can see why, uh, how an Islam-based party was able to offer this uh, new model of citizenship to Kurds, and you can certainly understand why religious Kurds in particular in southeastern Turkey saw this as a real opportunity. But a couple of events happened in recent years, particularly with the rise of the Islamic State, which completely unraveled Erdogan's ploy to, to build his party. The first, I think, was when Islamic State showed up on the outskirts of Erbil. The Erbil government had been told that Turkey, a, a hit upon mm -hmm. Erbil, would be viewed as a hit upon Turkey, and that Turkey would provide national security assistance to the KRG government. And Turkey reneged on those promises. The Erdogan government reneged on those promises. And that crystallized, uh, galvanized a lot of, I should say, anti-Erdogan sentiment in KRG, a real desire for a new governing arrangement in, in, in Turkey. The other thing was, of course, Kobani, where Turkish battle tanks sat quietly as ISIS was laying siege to this town in Syria. And that led to the view across the region, particularly in Kurdish-speaking communities, that when Erdogan looks at the region, when he looks at Syria, he sees on his ladder of enemies two top priorities. There's the butcher Assad, and there are the Kurds. And somewhere on that ladder is al-Qaeda and ISIS. <laughs> Some people will claim al-Qaeda and ISIS isn't even on the ladder. Um, but somewhere, but the, the point is al-Qaeda and ISIS ranks lower on the ladder of Erdogan's enemies from the perspective of a lot of Kurds in the region than, than the Kurds themselves. This galvanized, I think, this sense of ethnic solidarity which has been emerging amongst the Kurds for the last 80 years and contributed to HDP's victories. Um, and if Erdogan can't figure out how to deal with this, um, then I think the scenarios are, can be quite grim going forward. Now, um, I think the good news is, to go back to what President Demirtas had said, the good news is, is that we're seeing a denouement of Erdoganism as it has uh, existed up until now, um, uh, that, um, that there is uh, an institutionalization of HDP in the parliament, one should hope it holds and stays, um, uh, and that this will fundamentally institutionalize some sort of, we should hope, again, if it stays, <laughs> This will fundamentally institutionalize some kind of discussion or politics around the all-important peace process 
around these demographic issues, around creating a new governing arrangement which can absorb the many nations within Turkey, the many peoples within Turkey. And hopefully it will also give an occasion for a much, much more sober conversation about Turkey's policy in Syria. So that, I hope, is the good news. The bad news is that Erdogan doesn't see it this way. He's still in power. Uh, I think if you look at his pattern of his, his habits over uh, the last uh, 12 years, uh, 13 years since he came to power, uh, one would not describe him as a magnanimous man. I think in victory, he's going, in defeat, I should say, he's going to show himself to be much, much more vindictive than a lot of us would like to see. And that this may well lead him into an alliance with the MHP, as the ambassador mentioned, um, uh, and that the MHP and certain elements within AKP cert share a sort of same worldview when it comes to Kurds. It's based upon a denial of the reality of the Kurds as a people. And I think it's based upon, um, uh, and I think it's, if you see an AKP and MHP faction, you're going to see a lot more hardline anti-Kurdish nationalist policies in Turkey, which I don't think bodes well for the peace process. It certainly doesn't bode well for Turkey's internal stability or for a sober foreign policy. Um, over the long range, I think we can hold out hope that there's a new generation within AKP um, that could possibly steer the party in a different direction, and there are other coalitional arrangements that could get a sensible policy going in the right direction. And court, unfortunately, the region is facing uh, an enormous emergency right now. And uh, while we're in for a, a summer of very messy uh, coalition uh, politics in Turkey, um, uh, Turkey and the region itself doesn't have a lot of time. So I'll leave it at that. Eric, thanks. That was terrific. Um, and actually, that's a, that's a, a very good lead into the, some of the questions that I'd like to ask. And actually, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, if I can start with you. What does, uh, I mean, having seen, having seen some of these coalition governments in the past, what does, uh, what do you think a coalition government right now, its foreign policy, will look like? How much of it is affected by the recent elections? How much of it is affected by, uh, by, the, uh, by the rise of the HDP, HDP both, um, both in the, actually beforehand, Tolu was describing the Syrian issue more as a domestic policy now, not as a foreign policy. But we can talk about it in terms of both, for instance, Syria and what, uh, what the United States and many of our allies, especially our Arab allies in Israel, still consider the major issue in the region, which is Iran. And I, at, your, uh, at your testimony a couple of weeks ago, you spoke very elegant, eloquently about that issue. I'm curious to know how, um, how this coalition government, how Turkey now deals with regional policy. What's your... Yeah, again, uh, it's hard to say until you see what the government is going to be, but uh, it's the safest assumption is you're going to get a somewhat watered-down version of what we've had for the last five years uh, because Erdogan stays the president. The AKP, uh, I mean, the efforts to try to put in a 60% uh, coalition government of the three other parties so far have not been successful because, again, the HDP says they will not be in a coalition with the... Uh, um, now the MHP says it won't be in a coalition with the Kurdish party. Uh, so you're going to have a AKP uh, plurality in government, and you're going to have Erdogan. So you're going to have one or another variant of uh, the current foreign policy. Iran is a really interesting case because Erdogan has run hot and cold on Iran. Uh,
basically, there are only a handful of real nation-states in the Middle East. Israel, Iran, and Turkey are on that short list. I've gotten in trouble when I've uh, limited that short list or talked about other countries that might or might not be on it. So I'll, in this forum, simply say, <laughs> among the countries that are real nation-states <laughs> in the a, Middle East are Iran, Israel, and Turkey, right. and I'll let the audience figure out what, if any, other countries I might possibly put on that list. But those three definitely are, and they're serious uh, nation-states. Uh, and there has been a uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years, competition between Iran and Turkey, uh, Persia and the Byzantine Empire, Persia and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and it still exists, and you can see this, obviously, in Syria. Uh, nonetheless... Um, it's wrong to see Turkey as a uh, full-time, all-in partner of Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states and Jordan in looking at Iran. Uh, those states are deeply insecure about the, not only the geopolitical threat of Iran, and Iran poses a geopolitical hegemonic threat, but also the religious, ideological, revolutionary threat of Iran to them. Uh, and we could spend the rest of the hour talking about what parts of the Middle East that would surprise you were Shia 500, 800 years ago, and what parts were Sunni, including most of Iran, uh, and how, you know, there are religious back and forth that really worry these people. I don't see any of that in Turkey. It's a very self-confident country. Its form of Sunni Islam is somewhat different than that in the Gulf. And uh, uh, off and on, including, unfortunately, for much of the time I was in Turkey uh, on my last tour, Erdogan saw Iran as a fellow Muslim power as opposed to a Shia competitor to the Sunni, uh, at least religious, hegemony in the region. So it's hard to say where he'll go on Iran. Certainly anything involving Syria uh, will be a problem for him. On the other hand, his rhetorical support, and it's more than rhetorical support for Hamas, and his uh, visceral dislike of Israel will push him towards the Iranian uh, camp. There's nobody else in the Middle East, at least in terms of nation states, that dislikes Israel the way Turkey does. I would say in some respects he dislikes it more than uh, the Iranians do, because for the Iranians it's a means to an end, which is to appeal to the Arab and Sunni majority in the region. For Erdogan, he believes it. Well, uh, if, if, if I can ask, I mean, do you think that the coalition government will moderate uh, the official Turkish position yeah. toward Israel now, or what do you think is... Yeah, I, 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 I think there will be to some degree because, there, as, I, as I said, Gold and Siniliolu uh, talked again, and they've come very close, you can imagine, with frenetic efforts by the U.S. government since the 2010 mm -hmm. uh, uh, Mavi Mamar uh, incident and have gotten very, very close. Uh, the Israelis have basically done all of the things that the uh, Turks have asked other than things that are impossible and illegal, like lifting the uh, embargo, which the UN and other in the international uh, courts have declared as legal. So I think that uh, uh, right now, reportedly, the ball is in Bibi Netanyahu's court, and he's going to think about that. But I think there's a fair possibility that there would be an exchange of ambassadors in the next year. 
What I don't think is that there will be a warming of political and particularly military and intelligence yeah. relations. The economic relationship is going just fine. Mm -hmm. That's how all the Turkish goods get to the Middle East, by the way, is uh, via Israeli ports and across to Jordan. I mean, that's fascinating. Uh, Tolga, before I ask for your, um, your take on what foreign policy is likely to look like at this point, and, and with the Kurdish influence, I, I, I need to give you credit for a great line which helped me, ex uh, helped me understand uh, Erdogan's no problem, zero problems with neighbors foreign policy. And Tolga was the person who said one morning at breakfast several years ago, he said, look, if you're in the Middle East and you say you have no problems with your neighbors, it's ridiculous. It's the Middle East. You're going to have only problems with your neighbors. <laughs> so I wanted to give you credit for that and ask you, look, will that change now? And we spoke a little bit before uh, where uh, Demantash was talking about he was on Almanar, Hezbollah TV, praising the noble resistance. Is this, isn't this sort of, and this will lead into coming to overconfidence, but isn't this the same sort of issue? Aren't there times when Turkish officials might be better off uh, taking a step back, or do they need to be waving some sort of banner all the different time? But generally, how, how will f Turkish foreign policy be, be affected at this point? Actually, when the coalition government will be formed, by the way, I believe that the coalition government will be, will be formed, because the thing is, right now, the president is obviously wants an early election because he couldn't achieve it as, as a result of this election. Probably the, the, the Turkish electorates didn't, get, didn't give the permission to the parliament to change the constitution and to change the regime as a presidential system. That was a, disappoint, that was a disappointment mm -hmm. for the president. And right now, president wants to try again, wants to, another election to get the result that he, he, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he wants, but I don't think that the member of parliament will go to an early election before mm. two years because they spend millions for uh, be elected at the, this campaign period, and uh, they need two years to get the, the, the pension funds mm. to be a member of parliament, etc. So this is uh, uh, this is very pragmatic, and this is I mean the, the, the human I mean uh, yeah uh, realistic approach. Yeah. Let's say <laughs> I'm not I mean we we. The, uh, uh, offending to them, but this is the reality. I don't think that there will be an election before two years. There will be a coalition government, and obviously the foreign policy will be affected from the rational thinking of the coalition government because AKP will have to convince its coalition partner in the foreign policy, especially when it mm. comes to aggression in Syria that the Turkish government is pursuing right now over the last five years. It will not be easy to arm some controversial groups in northern Syria, for example, for the, the, the new government. Mm. Because it's not a traditional Turkish policy. This is Turkish bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. This is following this uh, this motto, founder of the, the country: the peace at home, peace abroad. So the Turkish government doesn't. Turkish governments do not interfere in that sense with other countries' domestic policies, domestic issues in in, in that level, like the AKP government is pursuing in 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 Syria. Uh, and, and as a result of this election, I think the Turkish electorates also gave this message to the government. Because when it, you look at the polls, 60% or 70% of the people are not happy with the foreign policy of Turkey. But when it comes to the relationship with Israel, uh, the negotiations are ongoing with the Israeli officials over the last three years, as you, as you, you know, Mr. Ambassador. So I'm not giving too much uh, the credit this the Senator Leola's meeting in Rome because they keep doing this over the mm -hmm. last three years. I mean, even before the elections, they were trying to, to 
some to find some point. But in the last attempt, the ball was in the BB uh, because BB didn't trust this AKP government mm -hmm. because the, the the draft was ready and the, they they agreed on even the reparation that the Israeli government will pay for the victims of Mavi Marmara. It was 20 million, and even BB uh, told the. According to the press reports, increased the amount and that amount to three million dollars more. But the problem for the Israeli government, this rhetoric at the Turkish government is not changing again. Israel, even you reach an agreement. I mean, it's problem. Probably the Israeli government didn't trust the AKP government. But after this coalition government, probably uh, the Israeli government's approach to this deal also will mm. will be changing. So, is the ball right now is in the Israelis? Right. I don't think that the Turkish government will change, uh, at least in terms of this agreement, this draft will, will be changed dramatically. And beyond that, the dynamics in the region are favorable for the Israeli-Turkish approach. approach How is that? What because that? Iran is a major concern uh, for Turkey as well, as Mr. Ambassador said. There is a proxy war ongoing in Syria between Iran and Turkey right. over the last five years. And then, uh, given the, the concerns of the Israeli governments against Iran, they are on the same page, on, especially mm. on the zero nuclear deal as well. Because after this nuclear, probable, possible nuclear deal at the end of this month, or uh, three or four more days later, will, which the sign, agreement will be signed, the balances in the region will be changing in favor of Iran. And this is a concern for Turkish government mm. as well. I mean, right now, when you look at the official rhetoric, Turkey is happy with the stability which will be coming with mm. the agreement as well. But beyond that, uh, the, the truth is Turkey is very concerned about increased influence in the re Iranian influence in the region as a result of this agreement. So they are on the same page when it comes to the influence uh, of Iran in the region, Israel and Turkey. And some, uh, some regional developments are boosting this rapport mm. with Israel. The Kurdish, Kurdish issue, right. uh, it, it, uh, when, uh, when it comes to the Kurdish issue, I think Turkish government will understand that they have to change their approach, especially against uh, the PYD. Because uh, well, the, in the domestic policies, are, I mean, I, I'm thinking a little bit in a di different way. Because PKK and the Kurdish movement and HDP right now is dominating the Kurdish votes, in, especially in the region. but. Uh, PKK is a progressive movement. I mean, even it's an illegal uh, organization. It's, I mean, it's supporting the violence. It's not acceptable, etc. They are on the terrorist list. But PKK is supporting the women's rights. PKK is, is, is pursuing a secular agenda. They are, they are progressive comparing the conservative Kurdish population in the region. I'm resounding this a little bit in the, in the 30s, 40s Kemalist movement in Turkey. Mm -hmm. the, when, when the Kemalists were dominating Turkey in that time, Turkish population was, was also very, very conservative. It, it was, and it, 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 the Kemalists and the government were forcing the pop, population with even some uh, the Kurdish pra Turkish praying, I mean, the, I mean, excluding the Arabic from the religion, etc. So the, the, the Kemalist regime, when Kemalist regime was forcing in the 40s, in Turkey to Turkish population to be more uh, Western-oriented, the secular, etc. So this is what the PKK and the Kurdish movement is trying to do in the region mm -hmm. right now. Maybe 20 percent. Generally, with the, with the Kurds, generally, are we talking because about Kurdish, Turkey? Or are we talking about the Kurdish about... population in the region? As mm -hmm. Eric said, is quite conservative. I mean, they are religious. They are the family. The, the structure is different. The, 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 
it's totally different. We're very conservative Right, describing the, the, the demographics. The, but we are talking about the secular movement at the top. It, it, given the leadership at HDP mm. or the, 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 the BKK movement, they are, they are secular and they are progressive in, in some, at some point. So maybe 20% of the Turkish pop Kurdish population is really believing that idea, this, this worldview. Mm. But the majority is driven by other motivations. Maybe uh, we have to analyze, uh, analyze this very carefully. I'm, I'm t I think that this uh, integration at the, uh, at, the, at the elections within all this Kurdish population is, is, is also, was also a factor of Barzani movement because Barzani is very influential on the conservative Kurdish people. And this miscalculation of Turkish government on this uh, issue Given the energy agreements that the Turkish government made with mm -hmm. Barzani government, Turkey is believing that Barzani will be favoring Turkey in this conflict mm. between Turkey and PYD. And this is a historical major miscalculation mm -hmm. because the ethnic motivation will be, uh, uh, will be major motivation uh, between the, the Kurdish mm. groups in the, in, in the area. And Barzani movement, given the fact that especially young Kurds are forcing the Barzani and the leadership and other KRG leaders in the, in the, in the region. There will be an uh, integration between the Kurds in the region, and so Turkish, you, so you Turkish government will that. have to change that. Okay. that this, this, well, I was, this you agree policy. with Eric with Eric's point about ethnic uh, increasing ethnic solidarity? Exactly. Yeah. Well, this is well. I'm going to come to Eric in a second, but I wanted to ask you before, as I want to uh, set you up to oppose each other, uh, when you were saying that there that there might be some overconfidence. Uh, and so if you, could, if you could talk to that, what you mean, uh, what you mean by that. And also feel free to respond to uh, what Tolga was saying as well. And, and then I'll ask Eric to... Yes, I just, uh, I just disagree with what Tolga just said. I don't think the Turkish government will adopt a new approach vis-a-vis -vis the PYD. Um, after the elections, I've attended many meetings, and this was the most common question I would get from the audience. So the AKP lost 9%. Uh, so the electorate is clearly giving a signal uh, to President Erdogan. Will he get the message? That was the question. And you would think he would, because apparently uh, the, the biggest factor in his failure was his loss of the Kurdish vote, what his stance in, uh, on, on Kobani. But just recently, uh, something happened in Tel Abyad. Tel Abyad is another northern Syrian town, and uh, it has been controlled by the Islamic State for, since 2013, I think. And recently, with the U.S. air support, the Kurds, the PYD, captured Tel Abyad. So on his way back from Azerbaijan, uh, Tayyip Erdogan, the president, he said something. He said, um, now we are seeing um, the emergence of the Kurdish movement right on our border. So they are... Uh, now they're even more powerful. They, they captured Tel Abyad, and that, that's right on Turkey's border. And that is a very dangerous development. This is what he said. So the ISIS has been controlling Tel Abyad for a year and a half, and, and Turkey has been providing electricity to, to ISIS-controlled Tel Abyad until very recently. And yet Erdogan thinks that it's more dangerous uh, for Turkey to be bordering with a PYD-controlled Tel Abyad rather than an ISIS-controlled Tel Abyad. So he didn't learn his lesson. So he still considers the PYD as a bigger threat than, than the Islamic State. 
uh, and, and especially if he's considering, again, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't think a coalition government is going to be possible. Uh, I mean, the, the most likely candidate, of course, a coalition, as a coalition partner is the MHP. And I think Erdogan, now, uh, his strategy is based on not trying to win back the Kurdish vote that he has lost to the HDP. His strategy is trying to win back the nationalist vote that he has lost to the ultra-nationalist MHP. So mm. that means that he will consider the P will keep considering the PYD as a bigger bigger threat. Um, mm. But on the other hand, I think the de facto situation might push uh, the Turkish government to revise its approach. He's not going to do that willingly because what we are seeing right now after Tel Abiyat. Um, after the re- capture of Tel Abiyad by the PYD. So there are t- three Kurdish cantons on northern Syria. So there is on the, the, the very uh, uh, east, you have uh, the Jazeera canton, you have Kobani, and then you have Afrin. And these are small pockets, and they were, uh, there was no connection between them. So now with the capture of Tel Abiyad, which is in between two Kurdish cantons, now there is, there is a connection. So they unified those two cantons. So we see, and probably the next move for the, the Kurds will be to try to, to connect the remaining two cantons. So then you will see the emergence of a Kurdish belt with the U.S. air power. Uh, and from the U.S. perspective, it makes perfect sense. Basically, Obama administration is, is, is uh, very frustrated with Turkey's unwillingness to do something uh, against the Islamic State. So now, if Ankara is not willing to do that, then I have a partner who is willing to do just that. Because the capture of, with the capture of Tel Abiyad now, there is no connection. The Islamic State would get logistical support from Turkey uh, through Tel Abiyad. So now, that is gone. So... I think the U.S. will be willing to work with the Kurds even further. And that could push Turkey to do something, to revise its approach. Um, But going back to your question, yes, the Kurds are are overconfident. Um, They think the PKK, I think, used uh, the ceasefire with the Turkish state to, uh, to empower itself, to... Uh, to empower itself institutionally, uh, socially, politically. So if you travel around the Kurdish region in Turkey, you'll see that. Uh, There are, again, many civil... There are multiplicity of Kurdish actors. That is something that you would not see before. There are civil society or tens of civil society organizations, tens of women's organizations, schools, and there are... Uh, they're le- running language institutes. And even there was, this, uh, there was this guy who was a member of the, the Kurdish political movement in the 1990s. He's a very prominent guy. Um, he, I, uh, he, he said something to me that I think just memorized their, their mood. He said, we renovated the nicest building in the Arbakir. It could either be a home to the PKK's uh, imprisoned leader, Abdullah Öcalan, or it could be the home to the new Kurdish parliament. And that was his answer when I asked him the question, and this was before the elections, what is your B plan? What would happen if the HDP doesn't make it to the parliament? So he said, 
then we will, there will be a de facto autonomous Kurdish region. So the institutional uh, framework is there. We did the groundwork already. And, and the mood is there. Again, I was talking to Kurds who have been very uh, anti-imperialist, so very anti-US. But now they love the US. They think that the West is now supporting their cause. And this is, I think, a misperception. And I, I said, look, there is no change in the Obama administration's Kurdish policy. So they still want a unified Iraq, unified Syria. Yes, it might not look very possible, but still that is the approach. So this is just a tactical shift. So be careful. But still, they, well, think, they think that they're yeah. getting a lot of support. What I was going to say, but de facto what you're talking about, they seem to be interpreting it correctly. I just we had a, a panel here about uh, six months ago about ISIS, and one of the panelists uh, who's from Iraq, he's not a fan of Islamic State, mm-hmm. but one of the ways that he reframed the Kobani conflict was saying this battle existed long. This is an Arab tribal battle between the Kurds. So insofar as we see it as just Islamic State, that may be a misperception. And if the Kurds are seeing it as the United States helping them push back against the Arabs and trying to build a land bridge, de facto, they're right, right? Mm-hmm. The United States, they may say that they want a unified Iraq, but yes, they're but effectively the fighting yeah, for... That's right. That's right. And domestically within Turkey, too. There are all these institutions, and they think that they are ready if... Uh, uh, maybe they may not be able to change the constitution, but there will be a de, fo- de facto autonomous region. They're already, they have strengthened local administration already. Uh, so, so in that sense, they really don't want to uh, miss this opportunity. They think that, and every day we would see uh, the PKK female militants on uh, the front pages of major Western media outlets almost every day. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the Obama administration, since the conflict in Syria started, kept its distance to the PYD, not to upset the, Tur- the, the Turks. But all of a sudden, the Obama administration decided to airdrop weapons. So this was a huge shift. And if you lis- listen to the, the European parliaments, they're debating, should we delist the, the PKK? Uh, should we take it off from the, the, the terrorist organization list? And there was even a debate in the Congress. So these are all, that's why the Kurds are, are overconfident. Mm. Um, and, and domestically, after the elections, they think, and I think they're right, they have become the kingmaker. They think mm. that they saved Turkish democracy. And I agree with that. Uh, so, and there's also this transborder ethnic identity. The Kurds, they've always been divided, and that's been their main problem. So they have uh, the PKK, we have the PKK, we have the Barzani, and even today, there's still a lot of tension between Barzani and Barzani's movement and, and the PKK. And yet, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in Jizre, Jizre is another Kurdish town right on, 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 on the border, uh, I saw this, um, I saw an ad uh, where there was a, a Jizre basketball team, uh, where there was a game between the Jizre basketball team and an Arabil basketball game, game team. There was another conference in the Arbaker on how can we re- reconstruct, uh, rebuild Kobani. So there is that, that ethnic consciousness, uh, the transporter that, 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 that's... Um, that's just more than the ethnic consciousness among Turkey's Kurds, but there is that solidarity. 
Um, well, that might be a good, um, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask sure. Eric, because that was one of the things that Eric mentioned that I wanted to come back to. And I think that probably since we started a little late, we're going to run a little late. But uh, after Eric, I think I'm going to uh, see if there's any questions from the audience. If you have something, um, think, think about it. Eric. Um, I would just observe that the overconfidence certainly exists in all the different corners of Kurdistan. It's a, it's a dangerous phenomenon for Turkey, and it's a dangerous phenomenon for Kurds, especially if this proxy war, uh, which Tolgad mentioned, between Iran and Turkey gravitates more and more into Kurdistan. Um, uh, the overconfidence will make it much, much more difficult for the various Kurdish polities to maintain their sovereignty and some semblance of, of, of order in their own communities. Um, the overconfidence could lead HDP um, to not only see themselves as the savior of Turkish democracy, but um, not to push very hard in the coming months to reform PKK, to disarm PKK, to push some of the hardcore PKK militants to the, to the further margins of Kurdish society. Um, that's dangerous not only for the peace process uh, in Turkey, um, but it also ultimately uh, abets um, the uh, influence of Iran in, in Turkish Kurdistan. Why? Because PKK has had a, a, a bit of a, a conflict ongoing with KDPI, uh, that is the KDB party in Iran, and the only power that benefits from that conflict is uh, Iran. Um, uh, now, you could disagree that it's right for the Kurds to rebel there, but the more PKK fights KDPI, the more Iran is able to acquire influence and leverage over various intransigent PKK factions who, when HDP sues for peace, will not sue for peace. So that's a problem. The other thing, too, with Erdogan is, I mean, the, str the strategic myopia that he has uh, with respect to looking at the Kurds with PYD, KRG, and elsewhere is connected to his political myopia. And he still wants to build a, 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 an imperial presidency. He still wants AKP to return to one party, to a one party rule. And to do that, he's going to push, he, I think he's looking at the exit polls and he realizes that all those religious Kurds that used to vote for AKP are never coming back. Partly because of the horrific miscarriage of Turkish policy in Kobani and in KRG. And so he's going to play much, much harder to this nationalist base. Um, and this is for his own personal ambition not for Turkey's security and not for the AKP's future. There are certainly people within his party that are willing and capable of contesting him eventually, just not right now. And for that reason, I, I don't think that the immediate future, future bodes very well for, uh, for stability in Turkey. Ah. Um, I'm going to, did you want to, no. I'm going to open it up and see if there are any questions right now. Um, if you can just hold, the, we have at least one microphone. Um, this gentleman right here, if you can stand and identify yourself, and please uh, make sure it's a question rather than a comment. And keep it Tigran Martyrus and Voice of America. So uh, my question is about uh, the observation of Kurdish elite. Uh, if uh, Turkey, Turkey political elite will absorb Kurdish political elite uh, in Turkey, uh, is it possible to absorb also uh, Sorani political elite like, like Talabani and Barzani clans and also absorb the Kurdish areas in Turkish state and create new state, so like Austria-Hungary or something else, like Turkey and Kurdish state? Uh, 
Turkey, like Ottoman Empire. <coughs> yeah, um, that was more or less resolved by uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk's uh, decision not to uh, compete for the Mosul Vilayet in the 1920s. Uh, and part of the reason was not to have an overly Kurdish uh, uh, dominant uh, faction in Turkey. Uh, two other things, because there are all, a lot of these ideas uh, floating around. One is uh, uh, the Sykes-Picot uh, or any other set of borders that have been drawn, however arbitrarily, and all borders are arbitrary, uh, they're more resilient than we might think. Uh, Iraq has survived a tremendous set of blows over the past uh, year and a half, uh, and there's considerable cooperation between Erbil and uh, uh, Baghdad right now, uh, and there's considerable strains as always. Uh, the second thing is, and my Turkish colleagues uh, can get into this better than I can, but uh, there's actually a fourth Turkish group in this mix, and that is the roughly, what, half of the Turkish of the Kurdish, or I'm sorry, Kurdish uh, group, roughly half of the Kurds in Turkey live in the West. And to one or another degree, they're integrated linguistically, economically, to some degree in terms of family relations with that part of Turkey. The other thing is, that part of Turkey is really neat. Eastern Turkey is kind of an economic disaster, totally apart from the fighting that was out there and everything else. Uh, it's two separate turkeys, and the neater place is definitely the west. That's not the case in Iraq, where Kurdistan in the north uh, looks a lot more like western Turkey than does uh, Diabaka. And so those factors are going to play in in terms of how um, the various Kurdish movements come together. But there is clearly, as we've heard uh, by I think all of us, there's clearly a um, nationalist sentiment among Kurds and we've seen that in other areas where groups that are disparate in religion and uh, national identification mm -hmm. and culture and other things, uh, uh, Southern Slavs, for example, somehow find a way to come together. They also didn't stay together. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I just, I just want to uh, just come back to something that was very interesting what you said uh, about the Sykes-Picot borders being, um, being more resilient that many people have. Uh, I... I I agree with you. If you could just elaborate on, on that a bit and, and, and what you mean by it. Yeah. Uh, to the extent you can put your finger on what's wrong with the Middle East, and what's wrong with the Middle East is dramatically different than what's wrong even with China and, and its neighbors or Russia and its neighbors. It is the entire post-17th century international system based around nation states is under challenge. It's under-challenged by local forces, and it's under-challenged by pan-Islamic forces. And when they can uh, get ignited, pan-nationalistic forces too. There's a, a Persian pan-nationalism. There's some Kurdish that we've talked about. There's some Turkic. Uh, but the, the most significant are the religious movements. Uh, and therefore, there is a tremendous closing of ranks. You saw how quickly the United States, you also will notice how little we talked about the United States in the entire hour plus we've been discussing. That's a whole other set of issues. But the United States very quickly came up with 61 countries that were in this coalition against ISIS because everybody's horrified about that movement melting down nation states. Nobody was worried about al-Qaeda melting down nation states. We were worried about them taking down buildings. 
This is a very different set of threats, and the Iranians have, in their own way, a different variant of the same thing. Look at Yemen, look at Syria, look at uh, Lebanon. They're trying to undermine nation states as well and replace it with, you know, we're not quite sure which power, hegemonic, Persian or Shia Islamic, uh, drives them the most, but it's certainly worrying everybody. So because of that, and because of the fact that while Sykes and Pico as individuals get a lot of criticism in their countries as well, uh, I've had the fortune of not spending all my career in the Middle East. I spent a lot of it in Europe. And the borders there are just as crappy. Uh, <laughs> Strasbourg is one of the great German cities. And it's been in France for 300 years. And I mean, I could go on for hours. So therefore, there are no good borders. But if you start erasing borders as arbitrarily as they were drawn up, you don't know where to stop. And therefore, people will actually fight to the extent these 61 countries, including us, are fighting to uh, keep them uh, uh, in uh, uh, place. And I think they're going to stay in place. That's great. Thank you. Uh, another um, uh, Halal? If you could, um, uh, thanks. Hello, the Hudson Institute. I, I wanted to ask a couple of things. Um, I wondered if the, our panelists would say a little bit about some other constituencies in Turkey. Uh, uh, for example, the constituency for the CHP and what, how they understand what the outcome of the election was. And the other thing is the question that uh, was highlighted by Ambassador Jeffrey that we haven't really talked very much about uh, the American and Turkish relationship, or specifically the relationship between the president and uh, President Erdogan, about which Mr. Tanis has written a book called uh, POTUS and the Gentleman. And I was wondering if he might say something about I, how I, he I think he'd be an thinks this person. is going forward. <laughs> yeah, Tolga, would you like to help publicize your book, which I'm sorry <laughs> for not publicizing okay. before, and then and then we'll. And then, um, I, 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 who would like to take the question on the CHP after that? So, Batulga, why don't you uh, talk about that? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. My book was launched in March. Thanks for asking, and it's, <laughs> it's on the probe right now because the president is not happy with what I wrote in my book. And <laughs> which which president? Current president. Oh, uh, oh Turkish president. <laughs> I don't think that Obama is considering suing me. <laughs> okay. um, Anyway, I'm focusing on the relationship between Obama and Erdogan starting 2009 in my book. And I'm arguing that in, after Syria, there is a major fraction between the two leaders, given the fact that Obama gave his first overseas trip to Turkey in 2009. And he saw President, Obama, President Erdogan as an investment in terms of this uh, constitutional democracy or the secular uh, the structure of, of the country. Uh, it, it was, it was an example for the region, but it didn't work. Uh, especially after Gezi, this, this fraction, uh, it, it was triggered by the Gezi, actually, these differences. And then it growed with Syria, uh, the crisis. And right now, that I think that the two leaders are in the separate corners in terms of the regional cooperation. And it's deepening. When we saw in Tel Aviv, it's very dramatic change, I think, because uh, the Ob President Obama was complaining about the border security in Turkey in terms of the struggle against ISIL. And uh, he recently said that openly two weeks ago when he was in Germany, he criticized the Turkish government not ramping up the capacity against the ISIL, uh, the foreign fighters who are joining ISIL. And right now what happened in Tel Aviv, the 
the border security, which couldn't be provided by a NATO ally, is now provided by an PKK offshoot. So this is a dramatic change in the region, and this is this is the main motivation uh, for the Obama administration to 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 criticize the, the Turkish government. And I think, yeah, the, as Gönül said, that my point is Turkey at some point will have to change this policy toward PYD and the other Kurdish fractions in the region. And this is the main reason of this uh, this change, and it, it will have to. I'm not arguing that the, the, the Turkish government's the approach to this issue is, is uh, it, it, they will not happy to change this policy, but they will have to because it's not rational. And uh, the, in terms of the U.S.-Turkish relations, in terms of the leverage that they are uh, getting from the Washington in the regional issues, they will have to change this, this policy because, the, as I said, the priority for the U.S. government right now is ISIL, and as I said, maybe the ISIL issue is in the third or fourth or something. I don't know where is it, but in the, the threat ladder is in, in under PYD and, and the Assad regime right now, and it's not sustainable. If the Turkish government wants to, 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 to leverage of the Washington that the Obama administration is giving since 2009 to, Obama, uh, to Erdogan uh, administration, this policy will have to change soon, especially after the coalition government, there will be an opportunity to make this change. I don't think that the foreign ministry will be staying with AKP in the coalition government. But by the way, I don't know. Maybe AKP will not be part of the coalition government because I, I think that everyone is uh, maybe is sure about what will be the form of the coalition government. But we have 45 days, and starting the elections of the, the speaker in the parliament, every, every option will be possible. And it's, it's and, and to me, it's time. It's a matter of time because. If there will, uh, will be a deal until the Bayram, it will be probably AKP-MHP coalition. In the next 20 days, the possibility will be AKP-CHP coalition. But in the last five days, we might see an AKP-MHP government which will be supported by HDP. Everything is possible. Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that's a good transition for you to talk about. That. The CHP halal, is that what you wanted her to speak about in particular? Yeah. Yeah, the CHP is very happy with the results, although it lost 1%. I mean, uh, and this was a time where you would expect the opposition to do a lot better, the CHP to do a lot better. There was, there was a corruption case, uh, and the Syria policy was a failure. There was this increasing anti-Erdogan sentiment. Uh, so so the, the CHP failed to capitalize on that. So I think that was a big failure, but it's not how the CHP leader sees it. Uh, and I think uh, the CHP has some soul-searching to do. Uh, there is a new Kurdish reality domestically and regionally, so you cannot avoid the Kurdish issue anymore. And you cannot just grant them cultural rights and, and consider it resolved. A again, you have to do a lot better than that. But, but the, the problem is, again, there is a very nationalist, uh, the CHP is a very nationalist base. So it is, it is still, um, it has been the leading uh, leftist voice in, in the country. But now that it has lost 3 to 4% of its votes to the, to the CHP, we don't know what will happen. Will the HDP become the new left and maybe the new post-Kemalist left that embraces different ethnic groups? Or will the 
so if, if that would be the case, then the CHP will really have to recalibrate its, its policy uh, and, and go beyond the Kemalist uh, rhetoric of ethnic homogenization and let's try to keep the, the country unified and, and centralized. So I think, I think the CHP really uh, has, to, uh, has to think about the new Kurdish reality and also the new reality of the new young generation in Turkey that wants a lot more active opposition, more aggressive with a, with a more democratic uh, agenda. Thanks. Um, this gentleman in the second row here. You can just wait one moment while we get a microphone to you. Hello, my name is Michael Albin. I'm an independent researcher. Uh, my question is about the minorities. The Christian and Yazidi and other minorities seem to be putting a lot of hope in uh, alliances with, the, uh, with Kurds in the three countries we're talking most about, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Is this a misplaced hope uh, with regard to, uh, to these minorities? Uh, Eric, minorities Eric, would you like to take minority? that? Thank you. Eric, do you, uh, is that okay? Um, uh, I, I think, unfortunately, it's their only hope right now. Uh, and so I, uh, is it misplaced? No, not in that respect. Um, but that said, uh, KRG, uh, which uh, has provided sanctuary for uh, over 1.7 million refugees and internally displaced persons from the, from the fight, a lot of them Christians, um, has suffered uh, enormously. Uh, rates of abject poverty have doubled uh, just in the last 18 months. Uh, um, they don't feel like they have the equipment uh, to defend their borders, let alone to defend and to sustain this new influx of, of refugees. Um, and I think without the regional powers, by which I mean the Baghdad government in Turkey, taking an active interest in KRG's security uh, as a key sort of keystone to their own security, then uh, KRG uh, will find it more and more difficult over the future to maintain its sovereignty and to be a safe haven and an island of stability for these minorities that have fled the fight. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, one of the key things is to find, talk to the responsible regimes in the region because security flows from responsible politics and to deal with those regimes and try to find a political arrangement that can adjust and, and accommodate these new realities. Um, that is an element of, of, that ultimately is something that needs to be done through U.S. diplomacy, but the U.S. is very much an absent power right now and not exercising the kind of influence on the situation that it can. But to restore Iraq, Prime Minister Abadi needs to effectively empower Kurds and empower an alternative to ISIS, that is, empower Sunnis. Um, and that, I think, can begin uh, in KRG. Um, and KRG is interested in constituting Nineveh as a safe haven for the region's minority minorities, but they don't right now have the capabilities to do that and to expect them to be able to do that by themselves. Uh, it's just not going to happen. There's a long history of uh, problems in eastern Turkey between uh, the Chaldeans and the uh, Syrianis and the Kurdish majority. Uh, and I just cite that simply uh, to underline there, are, there is no such thing, I don't believe, as a national characteristic of a nation group, national group, that makes them, other than realpolitik, 
more tolerant than others. It's a level of education, it's a level of integration, and again, it's, na it, it, it's interests that make them um, the way they are. The KRG is very much supportive of these people, both for, I think, cultural reasons and for realpolitik reasons, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, actually, I think that's going to bring it, uh, our panel to a close. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate your being here, and thank you to all our panelists. I was really, uh, I learned a tremendous amount, so thank you for participating. Thank you.